This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 20th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by another Deputy Editor, Julie Inglefinger. Julie is a pediatric nephrologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's been honored by the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology and the National Kidney Foundation, and she's a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. We asked Julie to join us today because we want to talk about children and COVID-19. Today, we published a report from a group of investigators at the University of Michigan about the causes of death in children and adolescents in the United States. The work was conducted between 1999 and 2020. So what do these new data show and how does COVID fit in? Steve, the authors used CDC data to track the age-specific mortality rates due to the most common causes and graph them out over time for those starting at age one and up to 19 years old. There are several take-home points. First, mortality due to most chronic diseases is relatively stable over time. Second, the number of deaths due to motor vehicle accidents fell precipitously from the early 2000s to the early 2010s, but it's more or less stabilized. And third, two causes of death have risen dramatically over the last two to three years, drug overdose and poisoning, and particularly firearm-related injuries. In fact, the rate of homicide and suicide has risen by about 50% over the past 10 years, with much of that rise occurring over the last three. From a public health standpoint, it's clear we've done a good job with some avoidable injuries, such as those from car accidents, and a comparatively poor job of controlling drug use and firearms. So how does COVID and the number of COVID-related deaths sit in the context of these other causes in children and adolescents? One thing that we need to consider in making comments about that is the fact that these data end in 2020, but the pandemic has continued with several different aspects, pre-vaccination, post-vaccination, eras within it, and different forms of COVID that are passing around in different waves. But what these indicate is that Causes of death have been fairly stable, except for firearm-related injury and drug poisonings, as well as mental health issues. And it is widely thought, and there are some data that suggest, that mental health issues among parents, in families, with the whole change in what is going on, have very much affected pediatric outcomes and how children are treated in different families. The closure of schools for a long time has certainly affected many, and there are still many things we don't know. I would say the firearm injury increase is thought by many to relate to the frustration and anger that is pervasive without our society in the U.S. and other places, too. Julie, as you say, the data set from which this study derives its information collected data only through 2020. So that's only a small fraction of COVID deaths. Looking at the deaths for those aged one to four, the published article lists only 19 deaths attributable to COVID-19. But looking it up today, the current data includes almost 20 times that number of total deaths in that age group through the whole course of the epidemic. So it's difficult to make direct comparisons as all of the data are incomplete. Nevertheless, we can make some good guesses. To make some comparisons with the incomplete data that are available, 
The risk of death varies with age, with adolescents at higher risk than younger children. COVID-19 has caused many fewer deaths than injuries, assaults, and cancer, but the total mortality is similar to that of influenza and higher than sepsis. So on one hand, the risk of death is low in this age group, and most infections are mild or completely asymptomatic. On the other, for those older than age five, most deaths are likely preventable through vaccination. And of course, there are other complications of getting COVID-19, including MISC. Well, I think that it's really important to say that even now, the risk of death in a child age one to four who gets COVID is extremely low. However, the risk of hospitalization and possibly the risk of death in children in that very young age group who still cannot get vaccinated is higher than with influenza, but still very, very low. And of interest, those under six months have, it appears, a higher risk than other age groups of death. But it's also very important to say that the children who are hospitalized are most often those who have underlying chronic conditions. Children with severe respiratory problems, children who've had a malignancy, children with kidney failure or requiring a transplant, so the immunosuppressed, as in other age groups. So a question as a pediatrician, seeing young children in your practice is, how do you help parents with very young children take care of them? And I think that it is worthwhile to go over common sense things, like don't take your kids to crowded events where they'll possibly be seated next to people who may have COVID, but also doing everything you can to give their childhood a certain sense of normalcy. In other words, it's a balancing act. Many families prior to vaccination were just at home with often no counseling or outlets to do anything. And there have been reports from older children and adolescents that there have been difficulties at home getting along with adults and that this sort of frustration leads to a host of social and mental health problems. On the other hand, now many adults and many children over age five are vaccinated, depending on the area where you live, will depend on the percentage. As an aside, I would say living in a town like Cambridge, where over 90% of people have already had at least one vaccination and over 76% have had the initial two shots and many have been boosted there is an apparent safety and maybe an ignoring of what that is. Um, but what I would say is that it's important if you're talking to parents of a young child to include vaccination of everybody currently eligible in the family and caregivers and to take the precautions that I mentioned earlier. So, Julie, I want to explore a little bit one of the concepts you raised. And Eric, I think in the data that you commented on that we're publishing today, the challenge associated with our mental health and the mental health of our children. And I think that with the COVID surge, 
two years ago and lasting through the present. The shutting down of schools and the limitation of interacting has had a tremendous burden on all of us. And I think particularly on children who are learning how to socialize, develop friends, and the learning in school that comes from interacting with their peers and their teachers. And so I think that's a collateral damage associated with COVID that goes beyond the primary illness, but I would argue is a substantial consequence to their health and likely has contributed to some of the traumatic injuries that have led to death, as well as the homicide suicides that you commented on, Eric, associated with the CDC data. And we do need to think about the importance of our children interacting with each other safely to mitigate some of those consequences. I think that's well said and a major problem that hasn't been solved. One way to help has been to have interaction in small groups, and that has happened while schools are shut down, of children in a given area interacting so they know how to do it with friends. But a major issue is that the sort of things that occurred during childhood in any neighborhood, games and in some places, sports that are competitive, have really not resumed or have not fully resumed. And it is very frustrating for children and they are missing out on things that normally happen at given ages. Julie, you commented on the importance of decreasing risk through vaccination. And I think it is important to highlight that the complications such as MISI, myocarditis, pulmonary injury is much higher, or at least the data strongly suggests the risks of these complications are much higher with infection rather than with vaccination. And that becomes an important consideration as we think about keeping our children safe. I agree. And certainly the CDC guidance for families, and this is widely promulgated among pediatricians, is to emphasize that vaccination is safe, that as compared to other vaccines, vaccines against COVID are safe and safer and that getting vaccination will help protect against COVID, not 100%, but it certainly protects against getting severe disease. And saying that with any vaccination, there are side effects and going over those in advance, emphasizing that the dosage given to children is lower and that if they've had a case of COVID, they still should get vaccinated and for those who say, oh, well, this is yet another vaccination, you can get other vaccinations the same day you get COVID. And in addition, the risk of what can happen with COVID if you're unvaccinated is really important to share. And for example, the paper that the journal published by Price et al. showing that the vaccine is safe and effective in children. Lindsay, getting back to the complications of COVID-19, lingering symptoms, Miss C, does vaccination protect against those? Well, Steve, it's very difficult to study rare events like Miss C. It's also difficult to study delayed events 
like long COVID or lingering symptoms that last for months to years after infection. But I think the data that continues to emerge along these lines continue to strongly suggest that vaccination minimizes the occurrence of these types of side effects that are well characterized with natural infection. So as a parent of young children, I think that the potential benefits of vaccine in preventing acute illness and likely minimizing longer-term complications is very attractive. And so though we can't easily conclusively demonstrate this given the occurrence of these complications, I think the data all consistently point in the same direction. MISC is very rare, and it's important to emphasize that with parents and with friends who ask us, what about MISC? I'm so worried. I think it's important to emphasize that being vaccinated is almost certainly helpful, but that it is a very rare event that death from MISC is rare and has been so far, and that within a few months, and certainly by six months, most children who have had MISC, the vast majority, are back to doing their usual activities. Though at a year, the reports are they aren't as they were before. They've been through a fair bit, and the long-term outlook is really from all reports, good, even if that happens. On one hand, as Julie just said, we have MISC, which is very rare. And then on the other, we have the persistent symptoms that follow in some COVID patients, the so-called long COVID, where we don't really have yet a good definition to drive research in adults. So it's that much more difficult to tell in children who have symptomatic infection more rarely than adults. So I think there's still a lot left to know. Nevertheless, it does seem that vaccination is probably a good idea for preventing long-term complications. Absolutely. We don't have long COVID data that are really strong in children, as you said, and certainly we don't yet in adults. But in looking at children and adolescents who do get COVID-19, it's important to know that worldwide, the outlook is good for recovery. And overall, the death rate is almost negligible. So getting back to advice to parents, what do you say to the parents of children who are too young to be vaccinated? That I think you have to be careful about where you decide you're going. I would not bring a two-year-old to the circus if there were a circus. I would not expose them to an unnecessary trip on a train or an airplane. On the other hand, I would certainly bring them to events where people have been vaccinated and you know they have. And I would, when possible, actually do testing before big events. But I think putting a very young child in isolation or in a bubble will, in that age group particularly, put them at risk for developmental delays of one sort or another. So it's a difficult issue. 
And it's an increasingly difficult issue as unmasking is occurring. And as we all know, this week, a federal judge countermanded the CDC plan to continue masking on airplanes. And four major carriers have decided masks are no longer going to be required. In terms of what to do with very young children, I think the other thing to say is if you're having visitors, make sure they're well and do as many things as the summer's approaching outside. And I guess I'd also say that as vaccinations for very young children may soon be approved, I would encourage parents to have the children vaccinated. So, Steve, as Julie points out, physical distance, summertime can help, barriers like masks help, testing to decrease exposure to those who are actively infected. And of course, testing has had challenges recently based upon funding and availability. And then the issue of vaccination and how we think about that in the little ones the very little ones, the under fives. And here, I think there's a big challenge that we've been discussing for the last two years on this podcast and in the journal. How do we manage speed and data? Data take time and how to properly study something like what is the right way to vaccinate those under five who may be substantially smaller and lower weight Therefore, what dose should be used? What level of safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy are needed? And that is a real challenge. And I think the FDA and other regulatory bodies around the world have been struggling with what level of data are needed to be confident that something is likely to be safe and effective. And we as a community, as a medical journal, as providers, as parents, as members of our society are all struggling with what is the right amount of data to be able to extend vaccination to this incredibly vulnerable population. And it's a real challenge. And I wish the FDA careful and speedy deliberation as well as other regulatory bodies in weighing these types of data. In addition, I think what's challenging here is how do we think about this type of vaccination in those who are new members of our society, which of course the little ones are by definition, in relation to which type of vaccine related to what variants are circulating? And that becomes a very difficult question in terms of the original vaccine sequence versus the Omicron sequence. And so there are many challenges in this space. But it's very important for all of us to be as comfortable as possible with these moving parts as we make the best decisions to help protect some of our most vulnerable members of society, our little ones. I think one of the problems that we're facing that you raise, Lindsay, is technical. What do vaccines do? At the beginning, our vaccines prevented infection, and they did it very, very effectively when they were very well matched against the strains that were circulating at the time. That has become progressively less true over time. And the current vaccines don't protect against infection particularly well for our recent strains. We don't know what's going to happen with strains in the future, and we don't know how that's going to apply to the youngest individuals. Clearly, having a vaccine that protected against infection, which might happen with better matched vaccines, for example, 
would make a very big difference in thinking through how best to use vaccines. Nevertheless, I agree that vaccination is probably a good idea to protect against even the less common severe repercussions, which can occur, even if rarely, in children and probably young children. And I think, Eric, extending this to influenza and other important respiratory pathogens, COVID is not the only severe respiratory illness that our children face and face for the first time. And that is something we'll have to watch carefully and determine how best to respond if there is a rebound in respiratory illnesses this summer and fall, given the substantial decrease in the last two years likely associated with the physical distancing and masking that went on in general. So beyond COVID, there's risk of other respiratory illnesses that may cause significant illness. I think that it's going to be very important to see what happens with other respiratory illnesses and what has happened this year with schools opening up. The anecdotal information that pediatricians find in their offices is that there is an uptick in bad colds, in flu, RSV, but we don't really have those data. And as you said before, Lindsay, these things lag. So we don't really have the background to know how to handle that. But as we may emerge from this pandemic, or as SARS-CoV-2 becomes really endemic, where will it fit in? Will everybody get a booster every six months? Or will that not be necessary? And how will we handle that for our youngest members of society? Thank you, Julie, for joining us today. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.